0: Hello and welcome to Season 1 of The Inclusive Bookshelf, where we explore the reading journeys of some phenomenal, diverse writers who have shaped how we read social justice, inclusion and intersectionality. I am your host, Zina, and every episode I will speak to one such author about books that have been pivotal in their life and strongly influenced their thought and work. So stay tuned for some brilliant book recommendations and let's dive right in. For our very first episode, we have with us Urvashi Bhutalia, an Indian feminist writer, publisher and activist. She is known for her pioneering work in the women's movement of India, as well as for authoring books such as The Other Side of Silence, Voices from the Partition of India, and Speaking Peace, Women's Voices from Kashmir. In 2003, she founded Zuban Books, a feminist publishing house that is known for its path-breaking and diverse work. In this episode, Urvashi tells us about her early encounters with inclusive literature and how her reading journey has evolved with her feminism. She also talks about the importance of reading books that transcend and question boundaries of identity and how reading is inherently a form of activism. So let's dive into the world of feminist literature with Urvashi Patalia and discover some incredible titles for our reading list. Hi Urvashi, thank you so much for joining us today. We are super excited to hear what you have to say about our favorite topics, that is books. Hello. Thank you for having me here, Zinia. I'm also super excited because this is also my favorite topic. (laughs) Yes. And you've often spoken about how reading is an enormous privilege and, of course, sparks immense joy. As someone who has grown up devouring books by the dozen and later realizing that most of them were by white authors, often meal. I've slowly been trying to decolonize my bookshelf these days, trying to widen my horizons. I want to hear your thoughts about the act of reading diversely and it matters, especially today.
1: So, you know, as young people growing up, uh, my generation, so I'm now really nearly 70. And I heard somebody, one of my colleagues the other day say, she's really old, she's 17, almost about someone else. And I was sitting there and laughing and thinking, okay, Maybe they they don't see me as really old just yet. Mm -hmm. But as someone of my generation, we were like the first generation after India became independent. I was born five years after India became independent. And in terms of what was available to us to read, we were still left with a very direct legacy of colonialism. So my childhood reading was largely in English and largely white male female both authors so the usual stuff you know in it and that kind of thing but also a lot of comics because those were easily available at that time and i remember reading things like the headless horseman and phantom comics which really which frightened us into believing those were real characters we used to sleep <laughs> with, with iron locks under our pillows to ward off the headless horseman should he ever come our way so grew up reading that but actually finding a lot of um, different possibilities of reading available around us which we didn't pay too much attention to but they kind of sank into our consciousness in some way or the other. I'm thinking of for example my grandmother lived with us and my family from my father's side is a Sikh family So my grandmother always read the Guru Granth Sahib in the mornings and she had what Punjabi what Sikhs call a buddha, which is a little version, a bridged version. And she would read from it and uh, recite all the the couplets and things from it. So we were aware that there was that. My mother was a teacher and she was a teacher of English, but she was also a reader and writer in both Gurmukhi and Hindi. So she had, for example, different versions of the poem, Heer Ranja or Sunni Mahival or Rajinder Singh Bedi's writings and various other kinds of uh, Punjabi books around. She had her English literature uh, books around. She was also a scholar of Dickens. So I read all of Charles Dickens because of my mother. But, and she was also a great reader of Hindi. And one of things I remember is collection of really beautiful poems of uh, Mahadevi Varma, along with her drawings. I didn't know that Mahadevi Varma was also an artist. So in some ways, while we read English literature, these things impinged on my consciousness somewhere. And gradually over a period of time, after we moved from Punjab to Delhi, I began to explore More of reading non white, non English, uh, but it was only much, quite a bit later in life, that they became central uh, to my reading. So the initial books, initial forays into reading were like that.
0: If you are talking about the colonial influence, I grew up in the 90s and in the early 2000s, and I was just reading uh, Enid Blyton and and, then Roald Dahl. And I don't think there has been any percolation of Truly diverse literature. When it comes to children's libraries and schools, we still have the same books, and and I I feel that is why I realized how important it is to at least begin somewhere. It's it's very daunting, but I wanted to start somewhere. So I would like to ask you, growing up, what would you say were your earliest reading influences when it comes to feminist thought and practice? Since you mentioned that you started reading diversely after a certain point, yeah, feminist
1: thought and practice in the Early days, of course, uh, it's difficult to pinpoint something. But as I mentioned that, for example, uh, looking at Mahadevi Verma's poems and uh, some of her short essays, there was a book that my mother had called Shrankla Ki which means uh, links in a chain. And that had several of her essays about women, very short pieces, but very moving. So one level, there was that. At another level, there was the story of um, Heed, Ranja, and Soni Maival, star-crossed lovers in which the woman character was always a strong character. Then, of course, I read books like Louisa Alcott's Little Women, all the five volumes of it. So all of those, in some ways, entered my consciousness. Also, we read, when we were kids, one of the regular reads was Chanda Mama the magazine that we read that all. The yes. So not that Chanda Mama had much about women <laughs> hardly at all, but still uh, things like stories about science and uh, the world around us, all of these became quite important. I think more conscious uh, reading of women's work began for me really when I, little before I joined university. Because even in school, and I spent eight years of my school, adult school life in Delhi, because in 1961, December, I think my family moved from Punjab to Delhi, and then we were here. Now, there again, you find a dichotomy, because the stuff that you read in school, all the books that were prescribed in our syllabi, and they were really interesting books, were all British. So (laughs) it you just got to know that you hardly had an Indian writer, so whatever Indian writers there were were on the periphery. Then in college, it was the same thing. But I know that by the time I finished my BA degree, I was fed up to the teeth and head with English literature. I still loved it. I went on to do an MA, but it was so clear to me how completely removed it was from where I was living and the kind of realities I was facing and yet university courses did not allow us to enter any other literatures you know the course was the BA and MA were English and therefore you studied English writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was on the side that one began to read Indian writers so I would say that the change really came about uh, towards the last years of school but more uh, impactfully in college, during graduation, during yeah,
0: mm-hmm. so
1: during graduation and then went on.
0: Yeah. So, could you give us some names? Could you talk about some of the books that you perhaps remember when you read them? And and because I remember when I started reading, which was very late. It was probably when I was like twenty, twenty one. I started even venturing into diverse literature, and I realized that. It really sort of provides you a lens of looking at the world very differently. And I I, I think I will remember those books for the rest of my life, the ones that I began with. So, would you have any titles that particularly stayed with you from those early days of college? Yeah, I
1: think, uh, you know, in the early days, uh, for example, one of the writers that I was very influenced by, and I later went on to do an MA dissertation on him, so the male writer. Oh. Uh, was Preenchand because of the kind of writing, you know, the social literature, social impact literature, reflection of what was going on in society at that time. Right. Um, but also alongside Preenchand, and initially I have to say that I read Bodhan, his first novel, uh, not first novel, but his major novel, mm-hmm. uh, in English as in translation. And then later I went on to read his books in Hindi. That was very much there. And then there were other writers who became really interesting for us. Some who wrote in English, like Nainthara Segal, like Anita Desai, like Kamala Markandaya. These were writers mm-hmm. writing in English, but Indian writers. And gradually as your knowledge and tastes expand. You know, you, you realize that there is a whole world out there. <laughs> exactly. Such, or there are many worlds out there that are not finding representation in a lot of what gets published and you have to go out and seek things. Absolutely. I remember discovering writers one by one. For example, I remember reading a very short novel by a Hindi writer called Usha Priyambada. And the okay. novel was called Rukhye Gi Nahi Radhika. I kind of mm-hmm. fell in love with the title of the novel.
0: Her <laughs> <laughs> read- best friend's name is Radhika. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, well, you tell her there's this novel in her name. Yes. And, um, and it was a story of a young uh, urban woman who wants to lead her own life. And that appeals to me uh, a great deal. Then I read a Punjabi writer, although read her in translation, called Dalip Kaur mm-hmm. uh, And then I discovered writers like Amrita Pritham and Krishna Sokhti, who were really pretty amazing writers. Ismail Juktai, and Haider, you know, all of these writers began to sort of impinge on my consciousness. Later it was people like Mirjula Garg and um, Manjul Bhagat. Chitra Mudgal, these were Hindi, because Hindi is the other language I could read. Hmm. And though I am a Punjabi and I speak it, I read it with great, I mean, I read it with difficulty I, and I do not read fluently in it. I would not be able to read um, novels and things like that. I can read road signs.
0: <laughs> I really it's, it's me with Bengali. I can only read road signs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So,
1: um, in a sense, these Writers slowly sort of began to become real, but I want to connect this, you know, because I think that the whole business of reading has to be thought about in connection with the business of publishing. Yes. And because I'm a publisher, I know this very well. And in the early days of my work in publishing, when I hadn't yet become involved in feminist publishing, but I was working in a mainstream publishing house, Oxford University Press, Right. Mm-hmm. The kinds of books that we published were so limited and so upper class, upper caste, English, urban, etc., uh, etc., et that it was as if nothing else existed in India. And therefore, the marginalization of other languages vis-a-vis English was the first thing that became clear to me, which is why I also made a conscious effort to read Hindi. Yes. People who grow up in households like mine, you know, we grow up with English as a first language. It's very easy for us to marginalize other things. So I had to make an effort, and I found that, you know, when I was reading, when I started reading, it was very fluent. But initially, it was like the default option was to pick up an English book. And so you picked up an English book. Absolutely. And so, and right now, I am rereading this whole series by a Hindi writer called Surendra Mohan Pathak okay he, he's a you know multi-million rupee selling writer he writes <laughs> of thrillers and he has this series of books with a hero called Vimal okay and, uh, I'm reading one of his called Hazar Hearts because Vimal says I am mere Hazar Hearts and I can catch and grab anyone he's <laughs> but a good-hearted trope and it is so funny because half of it is in English so it drives me around the pen Because so I'm reading it and then he's saying what did you do and I'm thinking what is this? what is this <laughs> These books are available now, right? They were Mm -hmm. not then. When I started working in publishing, the books I found available in Hindi, they're very interesting. Gulshan Nanda's books. A lot of Gulshan Nanda was this uh, writer who wrote, I think, 33 kind of novels, which are really mass market popular stuff. And they got pot boilers almost. They got made into several films like. what was it? Chil Ke Uspar and Katipatang Patang and things like that. And they were really popular. They used to sell in lakhs of copies. And uh, I've I read quite a few of those. Sukuchananda was male. It's not that I didn't read guys in the beginning, but gradually I was finding my tastes uh, moving towards reading more and more women. And by the time... I came into uh, to setting up Kali in 1984. Uh, mm-hmm. That tradition had been very firmly established, although it was also very limited because it was still limited to the kind of thing that, say, my, other, my ex-employer, OUP, Oxford University Press, was publishing because that was the tradition in which I had um, grown up professionally. And I, I saw the gap in that writing that there were very few women writers but I did not see that filling that gap with women writers writing in English with uh, urban writers upper class writers was an inadequate step to filling that gap so that's what you could be a very adventurous reader and a very hungry and curious reader But if that appetite is not met with the availability of diverse literatures, you cannot realize your full potential as a reader. So for me, I feel even now I am discovering new things and I'm uh, reading new things, which is why I find it very difficult to pinpoint one book or another book.
0: No, no, I I completely relate. Uh, I feel like when it comes to reading beyond your comfort zone, or reading beyond the kind of stuff that you've grown up reading, uh, there also needs to be a bit of training that you have to do, a bit of mental uh, gymnastics that you have to do. Because I started reading Indian writers very late, and even now I have not read a lot of Indian writers. And and I can see that I wouldn't automatically go towards that. I, I'll pick a book by, by a white author, because I'm familiar with the style of writing, but I've realized it's very rewarding. I recently read... Women Dreaming by Salma, it was really good. And I felt like, wow, there is so much literature in Indian languages that just goes to waste, not to waste, but just doesn't get read because there's no translation of this. This has been translated. But uh, speaking of that, I did want to ask you, what do you think about uh, reading translations when it comes to issues of social justice? Because a lot of really radical literature is written in Indian languages. But You know, maybe there is no takers. What do you think about that? See, I think the publishing community
1: is by and large a very conservative and uh, doesn't like to experiment and goes for the standard uh, thing that they can pick up. But they are also very quick to see a possibility when that happens. You mentioned Salma, for example. So we published Salma's novel, The Hour Past Midnight, many, many years ago. And it was a complete chance because I saw a report in a newspaper about the Tamil publication of her book and how well the book had done. And it was a tiny little thing. And I tried to find her and somehow managed to find her. And we translated that book and published it. Now, at that time... I think most mainstream publishers would not have done that kind of thing, and I don't. I'm not saying this to to say how great we were or anything like that. It's just this is our job to uh, locate, find, bring to public attention women writers, and it's only now that Salma has become mainstream. Okay, and now she has a choice of many publishers to be published by, which is a great thing. But that process of finding writers, mainstream publishing, very often is unable to take that extra step because the motivation has to be the market and profit. And you can't justify the kind of time and money, et cetera, that goes into that. So in a sense, I think that whole business is now changing a lot because um, many publishers are realizing the experience and the wealth of stories that you find in Indian languages. And you asked about the issue of uh, literature of social justice. So I think in some ways, all literature is literature of social justice. But yeah, you see people writing in different languages and people coming from different marginalized communities. Exactly. Over there, what is happening is that a new hybrid style of writing, a kind of writing is being created. Which combines, I think, fact, which combines autobiography, which combines fiction, which combines direct experience and a whole range of other things. You saw a bit of this in Urdu Hindi and some Punjabi writing post-partition, because the initial books after the partition, fiction and non-fiction that were written, were born out of the direct experience of that violence and that loss. And you see it a lot in Dalit literature. So the writer, Dalit writer Bama, one of the first women writers translated into English, not to write because there's many others who wrote, but to be translated into English. Mama's writing is very strongly writing of social justice. And she calls her writing faction because it's a mix of fact and fiction. And I think what's very exciting and, you know, it's opening up in the world of writing is this That you're finding not only new ways of writing, but new forms of literature. And you have to, as a reader, as a consumer of literature, you have to rethink your own assumptions about what writing is to be able to enter this literature, to be able to understand it on its own terms. And I'll give you one example. Years ago, when we published a book by domestic worker Baby Halder's book, it's her autobiography, and we published it under the title "A Life Less Ordinary." Then I translated that book, and when I was reading it in the Hindi, it was I was quite taken aback by the style of writing and by how Baby was describing. So Baby had a very violent life and she described the violence in this really flat routine manner you know this happened he beat me then i cooked then the children were fed then i went out then i came back he beat me he hit me on the ear something like that and i had to learn to understand that when you are experiencing violence on a daily basis it does become routine it hurts you etc but the only way you can describe it is by kind of distancing yourself from it. And that's what was happening. And I learned to read those differently. So I really think that reading and writing and publishing experience are very closely interconnected. And if publishers are adventurous enough to provide you diverse, different kinds of material, they keep your mind as a reader active because you have to work hard to enter different terrains
0: yeah it was the same with salma's book i was really taken aback by the way she described a lot of the sadness that the women in the book felt and there was there was no flourish in it there was no uh, ornamentation that we usually have you know when i've read writing and I've, I've i've resonated with it but in a weird way that struck me even more you know much deeper than it would have, if I was just reading a lot of description, it, the way she spoke about it, like it was a brutal truth, was very impactful and absolutely because it's translated from Tamil. So clearly there is that sort of yeah. shift that happens when you translate it into English. But could you tell me, as you as you sort of moved further into the field and you started creating works of your own, uh, how did your reading influences evolve along with you later on when you entered publishing when you started writing did your reading also change significantly in that process
1: uh yes very much it did change uh, with my journey into publishing a lot partly because as a publisher you have to constantly be on the lookout for new works uh, to publish new and interesting things so you have to read uh, in an inclusive kind of way and you have to be open to everything. Uh, but partly also because of my very close involvement in the women's movement and the connections with the women's movement. You know, one thing was that involvement made me realize in the early days, the absence of literature by women and work towards becoming a publisher of that kind of literature. But the movement itself, is so diverse and developing so much, evolving all the time with new discussions, that as somebody who sees yourself as a publisher trying to reflect what's going on in the movement, your own reading, your own thinking must keep pace with those discussions, and your own search for literature or material to publish must reflect what's going on in the movement. So you may have noticed that we publish a lot of literature from the Northeast. We do that because the the women's movement has taught me how to look beyond the mainstream because even women activists, there are certain activists who are privileged and who are seen to be the voice of the movement and who are middle class and upper class and upper class. And I mean, I could say I'm one of those kind of people, but the movement is much bigger than that, right? So you have to look away from what's called the center to the so-called periphery and turn that upside down, turn the periphery into the center. So we started looking at writing from Kashmir, writing from the Northeast, writings by Dalit women, writing by trans women, writing by minority women, etc. And my own reading changed. I became much more interested in these subjects. I learned how to read differently. And many things um, changed, you know, about it. Uh, for example, we published a book long ago and that's not literature it's a book put together by 75 village women and it's a book about women's bodies and one of the things that book did for me was to completely upturn my notion of authorship that there were 75 women who wrote that book and they brought the book to us and said all 75 of us must be on the cover and so you know knowledge created collectively how do you read that how do you understand that how do you deal with that all the issues that we were facing inside the women's movement. For example, one of the early campaigns that we started to battle about was on dowry. There were a lot of dowry deaths happening and we were hungry for material to understand the phenomenon of dowry, but there was nothing. There were two books. You know, there was one book, small monograph by two, two men Paul Stanley and Tambaya, I still remember. And I think there was one small booklet by M.N. Srinivas, the sociologist. There was nothing else. We started working on the question of rape and sexual violence. We had nothing we could read. Today, you have the internet, so there's a whole world of material open to you. So all these these very visible gaps, these needs within the movement uh, pushed me to read the kind of material there was to address those absences to go out and look for material all of it so for me those things are all intertwined completely intertwined it's difficult to to say where did the reading start and the publishing stop or the writing or you no know, it's
0: just completely all of it connected yes speaking of when you were talking about how the women's movement is not restricted to just upper caste, middle class women, that's a very, very important conversation. And I'm very glad that I've been sort of born into a generation where when we were thinking of these ideas in college and and we started speaking about these things I feel like we do have a lot of good reading material uh, right now we have books by people of different genders writing about different issues we have people from different social backgrounds which did not exist even 30 years ago I would say so I just wanted to ask you since the feminist movement of course has always been flux and there have been newer waves of thought and literature emerging with every new generation of feminists how have your thoughts on intersectional feminism progressed and what role has your reading played in this journey since you've been talking about some of these books could you probably mention a few and and talk about how a lot of writers have been coming up uh, especially in the last 10 years yeah sure so you know in
1: the early days say when we were at university in the early 70s we were all reading because our feminism was all coming i know we were learning our, we were cutting our political teeth on our feminism at that time and as i said there wasn't much available to us uh, of uh, on india or indian feminisms or anything like that so we were reading mostly western stuff and i remember very well-reading writers like uh, Sheila Rowbottom, Betty Friedan, Susan Brown-Miller, and uh, various others like that, Bella Abza, Gloria Steinem, all of these writers, uh, we read them. And the understandings of feminism that we got from them, it was very clear to us that While this was something very, very exciting that we could also identify with, but there was a lot of differences. For example, you know, the definitions of the kind of feminism that um, we were finding in those books came from movements in the West, like radical feminists, uh, socialist feminists, uh, I don't know, reformist feminists, all kinds of uh, things. And some, one of the questions we often asked ourselves, what does this have to do with India and what, how can, for example, is poverty not a thing that we should take account of as feminists, you know, how do we reconcile ourselves with that kind of class differential in our societies, how do we look at issues of caste in our societies. Gradually, as we got more involved in the feminist movement, questions of religion came up for us. For example, I remember in Delhi, for us, there were these questions came up partly because of the women's groups that we had formed, in which a number of women who lived in the Bastis of Delhi. I still remember one discussion about Karwacha, you know, the fast that Hindu women keep. And um, we, upper class, Fancy women were laughing at our uh, not so better, well off uh, sisters, and saying to them, "Arey, forget it. You do karwa chauth is just something you know you do for your husbands, and why should you bother and everything." And they said to us, "You know, don't be so nonsensical. Do you realize that it's the one day we get off in a year where we don't have to cook, the one day we get nice clothes to wear, the one day we get to spend time ourselves? Okay, we have to stay hungry the whole day, but what's the big deal?" In the end, the fellow has to feed us. So, uh, you know, in a sense, it's sort of, for me, I still remember that being a turning point and thinking, my God, we need to think about religion. But when you needed to think about religion, what was there to read? There was not much to read. So there were essays by some of the activists in the movement, and those were extremely useful. So people like uh, Gabriel Dietrich, Gay Lambert, Razia Patel... Fatima Burna, Chaya Data, they were writing, beginning to write. And these were some of the early things that, that we read that kind of built our feminism. I think the question of intersectionality as it is articulated today, and I think that that articulation is brilliant because it suddenly makes it so clear what is meant by it. You know, it's like, Something that you have known, but suddenly something falls into place and you see it in that light. So it's not yes. that we were not intersectional feminists. We were. And we were actually sort of we had an instinctual understanding of the kinds the place where say Muslim women were placed or Dalit women were placed or how their identities intersected with what was going on in terms of gender. But um we didn't quite know how to articulate it and I think that is also because there weren't too many debates about that kind of thing at that time. Today I think the richness of the discussion is that it is so complex and there is such a wealth of material. Just yesterday I was sitting and reading on on trans people, on the trans identity, on the debates. I was So I went from Rowling, who I read first, to Chimamanda, to X and to Y. And then just being on the net, you could be led to 50 different points of view. Um, This kind of wealth of material was never available to us. So I think that that is what's really exciting as a reader, that there are so many different debates, so many different experiences, and so many different ways in which you can grasp one or other nuance of what's being talked about. Absolutely. Again, I was reading a book that we are about to publish, which is by a trans person called Akai Akai Padmachari. wonderful book and Akai's insights into just uh, what the whole trans identity means and what it means to feel yourself a woman and where that is located in the body and where that is located in the mind, it was really quite stunning. And I kept thinking, you know, if we had this kind of material available to us, we would have understood the issues we were dealing with much better, but we didn't. So we made best use of what we had. I don't yeah, know, I mean... <laughs> I've gone in many different directions. Go, 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 go. No, go, go. no, no, no.
0: I will... I was actually thinking of how for us, I would say reading is not just restricted to books even, because uh, a lot of the ideas that we engage with are through social media. So we read a lot, but not through books, which is of course not a great thing in, in its entirety. We should read books too, but I don't think it's a bad thing entirely because What happens is when you're reading these perspectives from people, say I read a a blog post by a non-binary person on their life. That is a text and I'm gaining a lot of insights, like you said, uh, reading from somebody's life who's very different to mine. So I would say that that is another uh, wealth of reading material that we have now, which is not traditionally books, but we get to read directly from people whose voices have not been heard for so so long or published even now you wouldn't see a lot of books published by non-binary authors or even trans authors so i feel like the internet has really uh, made that a little more democratic at least so this is one question i was excited for you've already spoken a little about it but could you take us on a tour through your current bookshelf and your favorite feminist authors that you've been reading over the last few months Perhaps give us some recommendations. We would love to add them to our list. You
1: know, uh, so my reading, as I said, is very eclectic. I read, I don't read one book at a time. I read several things and then <laughs> read in and out I get absorbed in one and then I can't let it go. So I just read that, but others keep waiting. So um, a little while back, my uh, sister-in-law who lives near me, she and I share a lot of our interest in reading. So we got talking she was rereading some early within quotes feminist texts and i say within quotes because they didn't define themselves as feminist texts at the time so we i started to read those with her and uh, one of the books we reread was a wonderful one of the early lesbian texts uh, it's called the well of loneliness and it's by a writer called Radcliffe Hall. So in many ways, writers had to assume male maleish names, you know. And um, it's a beautiful book about grappling with um, the knowledge about yourself and um, wanting to be yourself. So I read that. And then one of the books that I have always loved, again, from British literature is uh, by a writer called George Eliot, and that book is called Middlemarch. So then my sister-in-law and I then read Middlemarch uh, together. So we made some forays into British uh, literature. And then, of course, I moved, um, you know, completely to the other extreme. And um, I read, um, they're all sort of uh, sitting behind on my bookshelf.
0: Yes, I was looking at the, trying to make out the titles from here. So the titles,
1: I read, a, again, a book I had read long ago that's not here. But, you know, I wanted to remind myself of it. It's a stunning book called The Birth of the Maitreya. And it's um, by a Bengali writer called Bani Basu. And translated by, I think the woman's name is Vrila Roy, beautifully translated. It's a huge book and it's about the life of the Buddha, but not about the life of the Buddha as much as about the world at the time that the Buddha was spreading his teachings. And central to that book are a lot of women characters, uh, including one particular woman who works, I mean, who is a princess, but who actually then becomes um, somebody very important in a whole range of places it's it's a really quite an amazing book because it also gives you a sense of the world at the time and what are the kind of debates are going on I read then I became very interested in you know sometimes you start moving towards mythology literature etc so I started to read there's a friend of mine called Arshia Sattar who has done a rendering of Almiki's Ramayana. So I read that from cover to cover and really loved it. And I'd had it with me for many years and I hadn't read it. And then I read this book, which also I know very well. This is a friend of mine called Kartika Nair. And it's a long poem on the Mahabharata. You know, that was my kind of foray into reading mythology and reading around that area. And now I'm going to... Reread Devdath uh, Patnaik's Mahabharat because that also I find interesting in the ways that people tell that story. Then a friend of mine loaned me this really interesting book called A History of Feminism in 11 Fights, which is by a woman called Helen Lewis and which is uh, about British feminism, but it looks at what it calls difficult women within feminism. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in how the histories of feminism are written. So I. 11 Fights. 11 fights, it's actually 11 conclusive sure. issues, she means. So, you know, the issue of the it war, work, really. the work, the body, and and how women in feminism took those issues forward, but also had internal differences. So, that was also something uh, that... Always. It's very interesting uh, to read. I read um, a book by a writer called Parmesh Sahani, which is called Khuristan, Uh, Yes, yes, we've spoken to him. Yeah. So, and then uh, I am also, uh, I should tell you that I am secretly and not so secretly a fan of detective fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, my interest in detective fiction has been longstanding, but for many, many years, they have gone towards feminist detective fiction. So I only read women authors. I haven't found... I mean, I've always tried to publish Indian women authors I haven't yet found any really exciting Indian woman author who's um, writing detective fiction, so I'm not read any but I am
0: very tempted right now to bring up one of my <laughs> old detective stories which I used to pretend to solve and I absolutely adore detec- detective novels and I've never read any feminist detective novels so I would love to have some suggestions if Agatha Christie counts yes but apart from that nothing else it's all been Teluda and a uh, lot of men yes I think there isn't that much in um, in India there is
1: there is those two writers who write as, uh, as one, um, how could I forget the name, Salpana um, Swaminathan, uh, who writes in, under another name, but she has some really good uh, detective fiction. Others I don't know, Bulbul Sharma has done something, but I okay. have reread all of Modesty Blaze, who is my absolute complete favorite. And there are, I don't know, nine or I have all the volumes. <laughs> and I have to tell you that even though I'm nearly 70, I have not yet read, been able to read or allowed myself to read the one story in which Modesty Blaze actually dies because I oh, can't, no. I can, every time I pick it up and I think, no, I can't <laughs> <pick it up." laughs> One of these days I'll, I'll have to read it. So that, and I'm sure there's many other. Uh, oh yeah, I read this young writer called Karuna Ezra Parekh. Um, mm-hmm. Heart seeks pleasure first, and I liked, uh, really liked her novel um, that recently. And uh, you know, I'm just looking around me. So many other things. <laughs> um, I read Arundhati's essays, uh, Azadi, which were a number of essays somebody gave it to me.
0: In the, in the compilation, yeah. Yeah. Then I, yeah, I read
1: this Parismita Singh's uh, stories. Peace Has Come. Actually, these days, I hardly, a Modesty Blaze is an exception. And I hardly find myself reading non-Indian authors because I just try to read as much as I can of what is currently being published Uh, Absolutely, and most of them end up being women writers. Uh, So I've got a lot on my list that I have to now uh, find and
0: read. Thank you for those uh, suggestions. I feel like reading detective fiction is going to get me back on my reading track because there's nothing I love more than reading about. Thanks to Enid Brighton and Famous Five and Five Fine Daughters. (laughs) It's It's a very old obsession. Um, So I have a couple of more questions, uh, general questions around these themes. So one of them was that historically literature and activism have been extremely intertwined and have sort of deeply influenced each other in a myriad ways. So could you share your thoughts on the relationship between these two and how it has manifested across time?
1: Yeah, see, I think that sometimes the line between activists and writers is a very thin and blurred line.
0: There are a lot of,
1: um, especially among younger people, there are a lot of passionate activists who are also passionate writers. Then writing has always been deeply inspirational to people in the world of activism. Uh, So if they don't write themselves, they draw on Uh, the works of so many writers, which is why you find uh, the, you know, Fez's poetry is so evocative in every movement. In Punjab, you will see Pasha's poetry, which is so important. You will see Varavar Rao's and, you know, others, all of these people who are are both activists and writers who feel strongly about something. Arundhati is an activist and a writer in many ways. So there are many, many people. And I think that one is to seek inspiration from uh, literature, and um, the other important thing that literature does is, uh, in some ways, it provides by by reflecting by how should I say by not being adulatory of power. Good literature is not, but by reflecting society in all its complexities, in all its nuances, in all its paradoxes and contradictions. Literature is a mirror to our life. It also provides an escape, and the escape is taken takes off from what our lives are and then builds something else. But it also stays with what our lives are. So in many ways Everything that the forces around you are trying to delegitimize through telling you that this is wrong and you don't know what you're doing, literature is giving you the opposite picture. It's saying, well, here, this is life and life is complex. And what you're looking at and what you're feeling and is being felt by others before is a shared feeling, is, I don't know, ought to use the word legitimate, but it's, it's a legitimate feeling to life. I think it's a very important thing, and it's not uh, one can't articulate it, I think, in very specific, clear ways. One can't put bullet points down, but the two, just as literature and life are intertwined, and activism is a part of life, so those two are also completely intermeshed, I think, in different ways.
0: Absolutely. And I, I was just remembering one of the things that Salma had said when I was speaking to her uh, about her book was that uh, I'm not going to write what society is telling me to write. I'm going to write what I want to write. And I think that's what all writers should do. And uh, I was very struck by that because when I, I never thought of writing as activism when I was a kid or when even when I was a teenager. But later I realized about how every book has certain values or certain uh, systems that it may or may not question And, and I feel like it's been incredible to see so many young writers writing things that go against the current status quo it's absolutely it's great it's very inspiring as for someone who wants to be a writer. So, so yeah. Um, My last question actually is about readers since we've been speaking about reading and, and books. So the reading ecosystem in India has certainly taken a more progressive turn in recent times, possibly due to growing internet communities such as bookstagram and there's a lot of online reading challenges that encourage you to read more diversely and you know you have prompts and like read a book by a black woman writer read a book from the northeast and these kind of things i'm seeing a lot of my friends uh starting to read more diversely because because of that have you observed that kind of a shift uh within say book sales and overall readership And do you think that this might make ideas of inclusion and diversity more accessible to the general public, this shift in reading?
1: Yes, I think so. So I think that in Zuban, what we find is one of the interesting things that somebody pointed out to me, which I hadn't noticed, actually, uh, was that our readership is uh, largely a young readership which is, to me, really, really interesting. And it kind of ties in with what you're saying. And how I noticed this was one time when we had one of our annual sales where people come in all the time to pick up books because they're discounted. We had some financial consultants working with us, and they were in our office for two and a half days. And at the end of those two and a half days, they said to me, you know, The only people we've seen with gray hair in this office over the last three days is you and me. one, One of the consultants had slightly gray hair and everybody else, they said it's just a young readership. And that's when I realized that there were all these young people coming in. And I think it's precisely for the reason that you're saying that because the Internet allows for the building of diverse communities of reading, where you can explore different interests, where you can experiment with different kinds of books. And there are some bookshops also, like Champaka and others who try to push that. Yes. And because that's the kind of publishing we do consciously, so therefore there is a lot of interest among our readers in these kind of books. It's not that it makes us rich, it doesn't. We still struggle mm-hmm. to. We still struggle uh, to survive, we still struggle to make money, we still struggle to earn enough to pay for the books we publish but for us it's so important to see the way readers respond and their curiosity and their interest is what also pushes us further to seek more and more work. So in a sense it's like a dynamic relationship uh, between Uh, readers and writers because readers are curious and they and readers and publishers and and they also you know the internet also allows this sometimes we may bemoan this but a lot of the time it's very good is it allows you to hold people to account and say so you could you know okay this publisher doesn't bother to publish this kind of book or doesn't do that kind of book that it keeps you keeps you honest keeps your nose clean
0: (laughs) I'm a big fan of accountability culture. I'm a big fan. I feel like finally, people who didn't have any platform to air their grievances do have a platform through the internet and they can actually say that you're writing about my community and there's literally nobody from my community on your team who has helped you write this book. So I think that's really important and I love it. Thank you so much for so many recommendations and thank you so much for taking so much time to answer so many of my questions it was great I had so much fun and I learned so much thanks a lot thank
1: you for allowing me (laughs) to rattle on about this and you don't have to take my recommendations just read what you want to
0: I will analyze them first and then I (laughs) I will see which are the ones that like the detective ones definitely I'm going to go for them